All right, I hate to break this all up, but we're going to get started. Thank you for being here tonight. Uh, this is uh, the, the brainchild of Nick Oviedo, who's one of our elders. And um, this first two weeks, it'll be he and I here. Tyler's on vacation. He just left yesterday, I think, or maybe today. But anyway, he'll be back in the third week. Um, I will tell you, this never, ever, ever, ever happens in the history of, of churches where the people that show up exceeds the RSVPs. You, usually you can count on about 10 or 15% fewer than the RSVPs. So uh, we're sorry we didn't set up for more people. We'll try to make those adjustments. But uh, one of the things we want to do is, is help with this 22-week uh, series that we're going to start on July 3rd. Uh, that is definitely why we're doing this. But another reason why we're doing this is exactly this. Is, is getting people face to face with each other in, in our community and be able to meet and, and uh, talk to people. So that's great that you were doing that. Um, one thing that I would really encourage you on, I know life happens, I know it's summertime and people are trying to get away, and I know that many people have to travel uh, for business, but I would, I would really just encourage you to be here every night of these seven weeks for this because uh, each night will be good but all of them together will provide you with a context and, and historical overview of the, king, the Old Testament kingdom of Israel that will be invaluable to you as you study all other parts of the Bible. And so that's another reason why we're doing this. So what we're doing is we're trying to be helpful with our Sunday morning series. It starts in a couple of uh, weeks. The series is going to be called We Want a King. Um, and, we're, and, and in this Wednesday night thing, what we're looking at is actually a little bit more than what we're going to cover Sunday morning. Sunday mornings, we're just coming, covering uh, the reigns of the first three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. Uh, this study on Wednesday night is going to cover both books of Samuel and both books of Kings, which covers all of the kings. And we're not going to get to every last detail, obviously, but... It, it, it is a very large overview of the entire uh, kingdom of Israel from uh, their transition from being led by the judges into their kingdom and then into exile. And so it's a beautiful historical uh, background. Tonight we're going to be doing an overview of the first 20 chapters of 1 Samuel. Next week I'm going to do uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21 through 2 Samuel chapter 12. And if you have the book, uh, digitally or um, paperback, you might want to mention something about the book. Yeah, go ahead. So uh, we have these in the back. This book is called Kingdoms. I'll, we'll put out the website. Uh, Immerse also has a digital version. I think the, probably the biggest thing to note is that this is using the NIV edition. N NLT. NLT, thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, NLT. Uh, and the NLT edition, uh, it reads easier. So if you've read this, you'll, you'll know that you can especially with no verses, it's stripped of verses, so it really reads uh, like this story, so it reads fast. I know, Frank, you said that you got through like the six, the six weeks of this book um, very quickly on your yeah. break. Mm -hmm. um, so you don't- And I was taking notes and underlining. Yeah. I still got through it quickly, yeah. And, and also, there's an audio version too, so on the website, uh, they have the audio track of this, uh, immerse.com backslash kingdoms, and then you could listen to it as well, and then even in the, um, 
you know, a really good thing to do is read it and then also listen to it on your way to work. It's like 20 minutes yeah. a piece um, if you're reading it, so on a commute. Um, so like he said, we'll do, uh, we're doing the first 20, 21 chapters of 1 Samuel, and then it moves into 2 Samuel, so we'll get that out as well. Yeah. We'll remind you at the end so that you'll know what to read the next week. And one of the things the book asks you to do as you're reading it, and I think this is helpful, is as you're reading each section, uh, be thinking about four questions. What stood out to you as you read? Uh, is there anything that troubled or confused you? And it's the Old Testament. <laughs> so if you're not troubled or confused, you're probably not really reading it, okay? Uh, did anything cause you to think differently about God? And how might this change the way you live? And then, in other words, the application component. So that first question, what stood out to you as you read it? And, and um, I'm not going to answer all four for me, but I am going to answer that first one for this first week. And the answer is yes. <laughs> Something really jumped out at me, and I want to take a little bit of time to talk about that. As many of you know, I absolutely love the New Testament. I'm sorry, the Old Testament. And I don't think... Um, most Christians appreciate it enough. It's the groundwork for everything that is Jesus, and it's constantly referenced in the New Testament, and so it's good to know. And I'm troubled by the number of Christians who think, I don't need to know anything about the Old Testament, I just need to know about Jesus in the New Testament. Well, Jesus is all over the Old Testament too, and you'll understand Jesus way better if you would read the Old Testament. But, but this, and let me, just, let me just make this point about how much I truly love the Old Testament. Game one of the Stanley Cup Finals is being played right now, and I'm here instead of there watching the game. So uh, what was it about this first question uh, for me? So I have to preface this. I want you to hear this. I am what's known as a Reformed. In my theology, I am what's known as Reformed. In other words, I believe in election and predestination and all of those scary terms. And the reason I believe it is because the Bible teaches it, I believe and so do many others, but, but at the same time, I do not, as many Reformed people unfortunately do, I do not see Reformed theology in every single verse in the Bible and under every single rock that you walk by. Okay, there are, there are, there are those that are really Reformed, you know, Jesus wept, well, it was predestined that he would, cry. you know, no, that's, that's not true. So, uh, I just want you to know that I am reformed. I don't see it under every rock and in every verse, but clearly there's some stuff. If you're a good reader, there's some stuff in these first 20 uh, ver uh, chapters that will make you wrestle with the truth of God's sovereignty, especially, which means God's election of his people, predestination, Calvinism, reformed theology, whatever you want to call it. It'll make you wrestle with it. So these four books that we're going to look at over the next seven weeks, uh, really, believe it or not, it's just one book, but the ancient scrolls weren't long enough to hold it. So, so it got split into 1st and 2nd Samuel and then 1st and 2nd Kings, but it's really just one narrative, one continuous narrative as you work your way through. Uh, and, and scholars say that this long narrative of these four books was written by Samuel, who is a big player in the first part of this story, and then a guy named Nathan, the prophet, and then a guy named Gad, who has a smaller part, but of course that's where we get the expression E-Gad, so he's kind of an important person as well. Um, and these four books cover the history of Israel moving from a theocracy 
which was led by judges and priests of God, to becoming a kingdom, and becoming a kingdom which ultimately, over the course of several hundred years, led to their doom and, and doomed them into exile. It was because they became a kingdom that they lost control of the things that they needed to keep control of the most. And, and here's what's interesting to me. Uh, Deuteronomy is the background <clears throat> of a lot of what we'll study in the Samuels and the Kings. The book of Deuteronomy, which is in the Torah, which is in the five, first five books of the Bible. So uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There's a lot of Deuteronomy in the background of this. For instance, Deuteronomy 11, God tells his people, <coughs> as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, see, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. Now, right out of the gate, who wants a blessing as opposed to a curse? Okay, talk to the sons about a curse. They don't like their curse, I can tell you. And neither do you sons fans. Sorry, Nick. All right. Anyway, so he's setting before them a blessing and a curse. He says, you get the blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And you get the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I'm commanding you today and go after other gods that you have not known. And what did the Israelites ultimately end up doing? They ended up turning away from God and going after, after other gods. And of course, the Israelites are just like us. He says, um, blessing, follow me. Curse, follow other gods. Uh, what we want to do is follow other gods, but still get the blessing. And that's what the Israelites were hoping to do, of course. So this was just prior to them moving into the promised land. And God said this to his people 300 years before Saul became the first king. And then they failed. So they failed. And the two reasons they failed was because they never disciplined the corrupt judges and priests who preceded the kings. They never disciplined them, which caused the people then to ask for kings because they thought the kings would not be corrupt like the priests and the judges, which they were, of course, wrong about that. So they never disciplined anybody who was corrupt. That's a problem. And then the second one was because they followed false gods. And then listen to, to Deuteronomy 17. Now, if you know the story, God does not want them to have a king. He's against them having a king. And yet, in Deuteronomy 17, listen to what God says. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the other nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not, require, he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And the king shall not acquire many wives for himself. Does that resonate with anybody? Any of the kings have many wives? Anybody remember how many Solomon had? We're only three kings into the kingdom, and how many did he have? How many? 700. Tom Schroeder used to say that was the original 700 club. I don't know if you get the reference. <clears throat> and he had 300 concubines. What gets lost in Solomon's 700 um, 
wives is the fact that David had eight. That's still five or six too many, isn't it? <laughs> Seven too many, okay? So even David ha- was a problem. And then verse 17, and the king shall, uh, king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest he turn his heart away from me, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. What else does Solomon do? Uh, people estimate that in today's dollars, his annual income was about $600 billion. Solomon's, okay? He, that's why he was able to write Ecclesiastes. Anyway, so I, I would love to have more time to be able to unpack all of that. We can't. But anyway, the, the, here's, the, here's what you need to know about that Deuteronomy 17 passage. 300 years before the kingdom came into existence, okay? First of all, the kings never followed the instruction, which is partly why they ended up in exile. But secondly, and more importantly, God never wanted them to have a king, and yet, anybody see where this is going? God is sovereign. He knew this was going to happen, and he tried to help them prepare. He didn't want them to have a king, and yet he prepared them to have a kingdom. You see that? He knows what's going to happen. He's sovereign. Okay? And that they didn't really listen to him isn't the biggest issue. The biggest issue is that he knew because God is sovereign. Uh, Tom, again, used to say it like this all the time. If you're sovereign, as God is, he either causes or allows everything to happen, all things to happen. And yet, we need to also understand, right away people start to think, well, that means I have no free will. Well, you don't have free will because your will is encumbered by sin. If you had free will, you wouldn't have sin in your life. Your will is corrupted by sin, so you don't have free will. You have encumbered will. You do have agency, though. I like to use the word agency. You do have agency. You, you get to do what you want. You can make decisions. The problem is, is that it's always encumbered by sin. That's the problem. That's why Jesus came, and that's why we get filled with the Holy Spirit. So now we have power over that encumbrance of sin in our life. So we don't have free will. We have agency. Get to decide. We can rebel. We get to make decisions. It's just that we need to remember that our decisions are, are really corrupted by our own self-interest. And even in the first couple chapters of 1 Samuel, we see in Hannah's song that this God's sovereignty issue is true. Now, who is Hannah? If you haven't read, who is Hannah? This will clear it up. Hannah is Elkanah's wife. Does that help everybody? Okay, so... Elkanah and Hannah kind of start the story of 1 Samuel, and, and Hannah was barren. She could not have children. She wanted to have children. This was, this was a, in their context and in their culture, this was a scourge that you couldn't have children, okay? It's not just that she personally wanted to have children, like uh, uh, most wives do want to have children, but this was also something that the, the community around her um, mocked her and made fun. So, She promised God that if she could just have a son, she would give her son to the Lord for his service. And that's that's what happened. I'm telling you, you should read this stuff. It just, it reads like a, this is better than Netflix. This is better than anything that comes out of Hollywood, okay? So Hannah miraculously has a son and she names him Samuel. That's where we get Samuel. And her husband, Elkanah, takes Samuel as a newborn, as an infant, and takes him to the priest Eli, and dedicates Samuel to the Lord and leaves him to serve with Eli and to be brought up by Eli. Eli is a big player as well. Now, if you're worried about, well, what, man, that's hard to give up your, your, your kid like that. Yeah, it would be really hard. Don't worry, they get to visit 
They get to visit Samuel whenever they go to offer uh, sacrifices. That's one thing. So they, they got to see him growing up and everything. But Samuel becomes one of the major players in all of Scripture. And by the way, God rewards Hannah's faithfulness because she did give up Samuel. She ends up having five more children, three boys and, and two girls. But anyway, here's part of Hannah's beautiful song of praise to God in 1 Samuel chapter 2 just before Elkanah takes Samuel to be dropped off. And you can hear her praising God for her sovereignty in verses 6 through 8. Here's what she sings. This is in the middle of the song. Here's what she sings. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. She's saying God is sovereign. He, he, we say it this way, there is no maverick molecule anywhere in the universe that's outside of God's purview and control. We need to understand that. Uh, but we still have agency. We're not robots. So you can hear it in her song, God is sovereign. Okay? And because God is sovereign and because we have agent, agency, so there's tension there, we end up with the histories and stories of Samuel and Kings. So before we break into our groups, let me give you a couple more, uh, well, a few more notes, um, and then we'll get into our discussion pods. And now I'm just going to, it's going to feel really random, but there are just some points that I think are really helpful that might make you think about this tonight and also just point out uh, some points of interest. So, number one, Eli, the priest that Samuel is given to, was a very good man, but his two sons were corrupt. They were bad dudes. And, here you go, Eli never disciplined them. Eli never disciplined them. So, two things. God anointed Samuel to take over the priesthood, eventually from Eli, so that there was somebody of integrity to take over the priesthood, and then God intervened and took out Eli and his sons. Why did he take out Eli? Eli wasn't corrupt. Eli was punished, not because his sons were bad, but because he never did anything about his sons. Okay? You could draw this conclusion. I don't know if it's prescriptive or descriptive, but you can draw this conclusion. You, are not, you and I are not innocent if we just look away from sin. You and I are not innocent if we just look away from it. But Samuel is faithful and he serves the Lord. And I hope you see early in the book of 1 Samuel that there's this constant contrast between Eli, I'm sorry, between Samuel and Eli's sons. The, 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 the author keeps pointing that out. It's a rhetorical technique. He keeps re reminding you that Eli's sons are corrupt, but Samuel is good, and he's following uh, God. Um, something else that's interesting is Samuel, not, all, not just once, but several times throughout the narrative, tells the people of Israel when they ask for a king, don't do this. This will end badly for you. This is not what God wants. Even after God anointed Saul as the first king, because God finally goes to Samuel and say, look, you're going to have to roll over. They're going to have a king. There's nothing you can do about it. You're, you're going to have to roll over. Let them have a king. We've got it all prepared. I already made a, a, a note of that in Deuteronomy. Even after Saul is anointed as king, uh, Samuel keeps going to the people saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. At Samuel's anointing, 
Samuel said before he anointed him, he said, please don't do this. All right, you're king. That's, that's what he does, essentially. Okay? So that's, that's really interesting. And then, and then having set a, a, most of the stage, there's a few more things. Just hang in there, and then we'll be done. Uh, in chapter 3, for instance, Samuel has what we call his Isaiah 6 moment where he has this very serious encounter with God. And that means that for the duration of his life, he is God's man. He's a key leader and a major influencer. And yet, get this, this is really interesting. Samuel's sons end up following in the footsteps of Eli's sons. They become scoundrels as well. They, they, they took Samuel's priesthood and his power and his influence and they abused it for their own personal gain and pleasure. Okay, this is not this is not helpful. Um, and this is all told as the narrative in the narrative as the precursor for the people asking for a king. This is all why they said we got to have a king because the priests are corrupt. <laughs> so the king will be better, obviously. OK, in the meantime, early on, way before Saul is anointed king, the Israelites are, by the way, losing big to the Philistines. You've heard of the Philistines, right? So uh, one of Israel's enemies, their mortal enemy, and they're constantly losing to them uh, during the time of the judges. And at one point, the Philistines are doing so well in their war against Israel that they capture the Ark of God. And they're so excited that they captured the Ark of God. Now they have the power of God. But God doesn't want to be with the Philistines, and so this doesn't turn out well for the Philistines. And so the Philistines start to be, feel cursed because they have the ark, and so they come up with this idea. Let's give the ark back to Israel because we don't want it anymore. Anybody remember what they gave Israel back? When they gave Israel back the ark, they also gave Israel some gifts. Anybody remember what the gifts are? Yes. Like golden okay, yes. Five golden tumors and five golden rats. Thanks. Okay. Again, you got to read this stuff. It's just, it is absolutely crazy. And once the ark is returned, then Samuel tells the people, your problem is idolatry and lack of obedience to God. It has nothing to do with the corruption of the priests. If you would stop, see, you're blaming the priests. If you would stop being idolaters, things would go better. Of course, they don't stop. They stop for like a couple of weeks and then they go back to their old ways. Okay. Ah, I could get in trouble for this, but isn't it just possible that the, re the reason things are going rather badly for us in America is because we are also idolaters? You ever thought of it that way? We have all these false gods that we're chasing around, and we wonder why things aren't getting better. Okay? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. So, look at it this way. Here's one way to look at it. Israel does have enemies. The Philistines, the Ammonites, the Moabites... Edomites, the Amalekites, the termites, all enemies of theirs, okay? We have termites here too, so that's biblical, all right? Uh, but who is their biggest enemy? Who is the Israelites' biggest enemy? Anybody? It's themselves. They're their own biggest enemy, and that's our problem too. And then notice in chapter 12, even after a huge victory over Ammon, Sam, the nation of Ammon, Samuel continues to chide the Israelites for insisting on a king. And check it out. Although Saul is sought and, and anointed in chapters 8 through 10. So chapters 8 through 10 is Saul being sought and anointed as king. As soon as chapter 13 in 1 Samuel, God is already talking of dispossessing Saul as the king. Why? 
disobedience. Saul got in there, went in on a wave of popularity saying, I'm going to do great things. Does this sound familiar with some of our president? I'm going to do great things. And just a couple of chapters later, he's going, nah, I know better than God. God doesn't know what he's doing. And then chapter 15 is one of the most important chapters in both Samuel scrolls for three reasons. Chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, really important. Number one, it solidifies the fact that Saul cannot stop disobeying God. Number two, chapter 15 is actually important historical background for an Old Testament book that is written and and occurs some 500 years later. Anybody know the book? Anybody? Esther. It really helps you to understand the relationship between um, Haman and Mordecai. If you understand the relationship between Saul and Amalek, the king of the Amalekites. Okay? Because uh, Haman and Mordecai are descendants of those two people. So this feud goes on for 500 years. And they remember it in the book of Esther. Really interesting. And then number three, God actually says to Samuel at one point, I'm sorry I made Saul king. (laughs) Okay. Enter David. David uh, comes in in the first 20 chapters and notice how he is like the, he's sort of a bizarro Saul. And that's how he's portrayed. Also, David's relationships with both Saul and Saul's son, Jonathan, become an important part of the story going forward. Uh, David is also where we get the, uh, the famous line, um, people judge by appearance, but God looks at the heart. Uh, we also find out from David that apparently harp playing is an antidote for spirits that torment us. And so I've been talking to Tyler Thompson lately about getting a harp in here. Okay. Um, here's just a random thought. I think it's important, uh, especially if you, as you look at Saul and then later in David's life, the Achilles heel of leadership is pride. The Achilles heel of leadership is pride. And, and, and also notice in one of the narratives, uh, if you know the story of David and Bathsheba and what David eventually does to Bathsheba's husband Uriah, murders him, okay? Saul tries to do to David what David successfully later does to Uriah. So there's some irony there, okay? And then I, I hope I can just say this. Um, a hundred Philistine foreskins is the strangest dowry I've ever heard of in my life. Okay. Uh, let me end with two things. First Samuel 15, verses 22 and 23. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? He's saying this because Saul is saying, look, in his disobedience, he's saying, yeah, but I'm making sacrifices to God. And God's going, but you disobeyed me. I'd rather you obeyed me and didn't sacrifice anything. Okay. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And these 20 chapters end uh, in chapter 20 with Jonathan helping David escape Saul's wrath in order to go on the run from Saul. So Jonathan is playing like kind of a double agent in this. And that's what we're going to look at next week along with much of David's reign. All right, Nick. And I was thinking of Jonathan and David, the first bros of the Bible. That's right. Not the first brothers of the Bible. The first first bros bros of the Bible. Uh, So this is going to be our rhythm for the seven weeks. 
is we will come, we'll have uh, food, thanks to Stephanie. I really got, where's Stephanie? I got an appreciation for Stephanie today when the food is coming and not everything was there and other people were talking to her and then Frank came in and had a question and also she was dealing with the busy bees. Uh, so Stephanie was, was doing a lot uh, this, this evening. Um, so we'll have food. Then Frank or Tyler, I think me one week, will do uh, what Frank just did and kind of give us 15 minutes of background and then 30 minutes or so of uh, discussion. What we want to model it after is if you're part of an RC, hopefully it will feel uh, like we're in an RC. This is like your summer RC. You know, some people go to their summer home. You have your summer RC <laughs> this, this summer. Um, and uh, I would encourage you also to you know, sit with someone new. We're gonna try to do a couple of things tonight and in the upcoming weeks that will be slightly uncomfortable, like having to talk to someone you don't know, um, especially about you know, what was confusing or troubling to you. And most of all, it will be most important to uh, read. It will help you that much more, obviously, um, to read uh, from 1 Samuel 20 to 2 Samuel chapter 12. So uh, I am a principal at an elementary school. I was a teacher. If you are a teacher, you probably know about Kagan strategies. And so we're going to do some kind of fun Kagan strategies that are just ways to uh, be engaged. Um, a couple of things that I just wanted to share. Frank shared the questions. We're going to go through those. Uh, obviously, uh, we want to do some things to make sure that, one, that you are participating and engaging, and also that you're not taking your table hostage by doing all of the talking. Uh, so, so think about which one you might tend to be. And, uh, you know, Steve. I'm surprised you Yeah. Um, so obviously, you know, respect everyone's ideas and, and, and interpretations. Not everyone is a theologian here. Um, so everybody's going to be coming with different perspectives. But again, what stood out to you? What was confusing or challenging? Did anything make you think differently about God? How might this change the way we live? So for the first one, what stood out to you? What I want you to pretend is in schools, we have uh, what are called talking chips. And so we, we, I'm not actually going to do this, but it would, it would be like this. Everybody gets two talking chips. And once you, get, you, you speak, then you have to push one of your talking chips into the middle of the pot. Um, and then once your two are in there, then you're done and you have to wait for someone else to go. <laughs> so that's awkward, you know, for, for the person who, it helps because then the person who spoke that they, they've done there too. But also then it's like, everyone's looking at the one person like, yeah, we know you haven't talked yet because you haven't got any of those in. Um, so just hypothetically think about uh, how you're doing with your two talking chips, okay? So you might need to, uh, I would recommend, especially for the back, like Frank said, we'll get, we'll get uh, some more tables in here. We've got spots up here, so I would encourage you to come in circles. But at least get into a group of four. Somehow get into a group of four. A group, and, and these groups are fine. Um, to think about the question, what stood out to you? Um, and if it would help, I would say uh, the person whose birthday is closest uh, should start. So whoever's got the closest birthday coming up in your group of four or more or at your table, is gonna start out with what stood out to you. So we're gonna go on this one for about five to 10 minutes. What stood out to you in the reading? You obviously have, you can steal some stuff from Frank today too if you didn't do the reading. Uh, but the question is, what stood out to you? Then we're gonna bring it all back together and we're gonna uh, do some whole group share outs, all right? So let's do five to seven minutes on what stood out to you at the table.